Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're delighted to have you back with us again this week as we continue our journey through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And this week we are looking at lesson number five, which is horizontal atonement, the cross and the church. We are making our way through the book of Ephesians and looking at a very, very significant passage this week. But before we delve into it, let's begin with prayer. Father, we want to thank you for blessing us with another opportunity to learn more about you through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We ask that you'll help us to better understand the atonement and where we fall in this grand scheme of things. We ask that you'll bless our time together, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our guest again this week is the author of this quarter's Sabbath School lesson, Dr. John McVeigh. He is the president of Walla Walla University. John, welcome back once again. Good to be back with you, Eric. So an interesting study this week, Horizontal Atonement, the Cross, and the Church. There's a a passage of Paul's writings in the book of Ephesus that we're looking at this week. It's in Ephesus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Give us a little idea of why we're looking at this passage, what some of its significance is, and then we're going to kind of pull it apart and look at different aspects of it. Sure. Uh, we, we are moving to the heart of the epistle to the Ephesians now. Uh, some identify Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 as the heart of the theological message of, of the letter. It is a, a rich, rich passage. So um, the way I would try to encapsulate the importance of this passage might go like this. When we think of the cross and what Jesus does on the cross— we tend to think vertically that Christ does something to help my, my individual relationship with God. That's what I mean by vertical atonement, if you will. Uh, and, and Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22 has wonderful things to say about that, uh, that feature of Christ's work on the cross. But where it has come to truly bless me is to realize that Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross accomplishes more than my individual salvation. It does things. And part of what it does is to bring people groups together. Uh, And for me, that that adds some richness to the atoning sacrifice of Christ that I I might have missed outside of this important passage. We look at the world today, and there are a lot of people groups who are not mingling well together. They're finding reasons, ways to be separated one from another rather than than coming together. So it sounds like this passage may have something to do to help that. Uh, there's a lot of, as we know, in, in the popular press and, and in scholarly circles today, a, a lot of writing and thought about race relations, the relations between and among people groups. And that's an important theme that uh, that we should attend to as Christian believers a good place to begin is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, which might be the most important passage in Scripture on the theme of, of race relations, how, how people groups should get along in the gospel order of things. So let's, let's begin to dig into this passage. In verses 11 and 12, what is this reconciling work of Christ? Why, why was it necessary? What do, what do we learn about his reconciling work in these passages? Paul, uh, Paul addresses it here at the outside of our passage in those first couple of verses. 
And uh, there's some language here that might be a little bit hard for us to connect with. Uh, But he says, Remember, therefore, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, so he puts us on notice that he's principally addressing Gentile believers, right? Remember that uh, you who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. So he's actually reflecting some name-calling that would go on between two groups, Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other. And he is touching on this deep division that existed in the first century world between Jews and Gentiles. This was as deep as any divide that we experience between uh, racial groups or cultural groups in our world today. And, and so he then talks about what, what, why the reconciling, reconciling work of Jesus is necessary. And the reason is this total division between these two groups, with one of them, Gentiles, not only being separated from other people, but being separated from access to God and, and to the gospel. That's why Christ needs to die. That's why Christ, uh, Christ does, performs his reconciling work on the cross, is to redeem humankind and to bring people groups together. So you've hit on verse 11 there. Unpack verse 12 just a little bit. It's the same theme, but, but maybe a little more deep. Yeah, he's using the categories of near and far and separated and together to talk about Jews and Gentiles. And he actually details the ways that Gentiles are separated. They're separated from Christ. And here we should think of this as the title for the Messiah, the Anointed One. They're separated from the Messiah because the Messiah is the Jewish Messiah, right? Uh, They are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, so they're alienated from the whole governmental system of, of Israel, they're strangers to the covenants of promise. So they don't have, they don't have access to the promises. And, and then this, this poignant next line, having no hope and without God in the world. So their alienation uh, from, from Jews is coupled with their alienation from promises, covenants, God, gospel, Christ. Uh, not an enviable place to be from Paul's point of view. No, certainly not. And, and there are a lot of as you said, divisions in the world today where one group looks at the other group as being second-class citizens, as it were, uh, and sometimes it, the views are, are reciprocated. And and yet it looks like what Paul is trying to do here is to bring people together in, in this passage and, and do away with some of those separations. So speak a little bit more on the reconciling work of Christ on the cross and, and what it accomplishes and what where What do we see here in this passage that helps us to understand that better? Well, uh, verses 13 through 18, Paul gives a very detailed sense of what Christ accomplishes on the cross. And the detail is wonderful here. Once you are far off, you've been brought near in the cross. So the cross somehow makes it possible for Gentiles to be brought near to God, grace, Christ, covenant, promise, gospel, all of that. Uh, for he himself is our peace. So Christ on the cross in his atoning sacrifice uh, declares peace, gives an armistice, a peace treaty. That's a, that's a peace treaty. All the battles that have been so important to us can end because Christ is our peace. He has made us both one. 
both one. If you skip down in verse 15, uh, on the cross, Christ creates in himself one new human, one new humanity, one new man in the place of the two. So you have these two very separate types of people, Jews and Gentiles. And what Christ does on the cross is he redoes the creation story, and he creates of those two one new humanity. That's fairly sweeping, isn't it? Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And, and, and it goes on. It, it, it says that in the cross, Christ kills the hostility. He reconciles us both into one body, verse 16. He came and he preached. Through the cross, Christ becomes the preacher of peace. He preaches peace to you who were far off. He preaches to those who were near. And his summary statement here, his culminating statement, for through him, through Christ on the cross, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Isn't that grand news? But notice it's not as separate people groups. It's not as individuals per se. It, it's together. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So he's tearing down walls of separation. Yes, he is. And, and helping us to find mm-hmm. that we are indeed one in Christ. Can you imagine what an impact that would make on the world today if we could all grasp that idea? I mean, it would be enormous. Yes, and, and I think what Paul is, is saying here is this is a done deal. This has happened. You are one in Jesus. And now... With all of our strife and all of our divisions, we feel the gospel call to live into this reality of God's grace in Christ through the Spirit. Fantastic. Well, we're not quite through this, this segment yet. There's still more. How, how, does, how does Paul celebrate the work of Christ uh, in this? We may not be able to unpack all of this in the, the short time we have sure. left before our break, but let's, let's dig into it a little bit and, and, uh, and look at the work of Christ. So in verses 19 through 22, uh, Paul shifts, uh, shifts tone a little bit here to simply celebrate this incredible work of Jesus as the reconciler, the one who brings people groups together, the one who cements our relationship with God, the one who preaches peace. And now he's going to visualize this with a, a set of images a set of metaphors. Some people have called this a telescoped, a set of telescoped metaphors. Kind of one feeds into the next, feeds feeds into the next. And so he starts off with a category of strangers and aliens. So this is immigration status, right? So you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. Instead, you're citizens with the saints. Better yet, you are actually household members. You are members of the household of God. So you see how he's celebrating this great, this great change that has happened. And then he moves into uh, architectural image here, where he, he talks about what happens uh, between these groups as them being combined into one holy temple, building temple, concluding the, the segment here with celebrating that they together form a holy temple in the Lord. They grow together. They are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that's his way of saying, you are really together. You have become a place together. You form a place where God is worshipped and the Spirit reigns. So they go from being strangers and aliens to citizens 
to household members and, and then even closer with this, this metaphor of the temple, which we're going to explore in greater detail in just a few moments. But I want to encourage you, if you have not yet done so, please do pick up the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath school lesson. It is called Ephesians by John McVeigh. Where can you find this? You can find it very easily at itiswritten.shop. Again, that's at itiswritten.shop. And when you pick up this companion book to this quarter's Sabbath school lesson, you are going to gain deeper insights. You're going to to be able to take a journey in a story-like format through the book of Ephesians and gain a greater understanding of these incredible themes that Paul weaves through the book. Not just a, a... Authors have just about this much space to put thoughts into the quarter's Sabbath school lesson itself, but that companion book allows them to give more insight, greater depth, and that's something that you absolutely want to find as you're studying the book of Ephesians. We're going to be back in just a moment as we continue taking a look at this incredible passage in the heart of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be back in just a moment. There's something I want to tell you about that is so important. It's my place with Jesus. It is written's ministry to children. Take the children you care about to MyPlaceWithJesus.com. At MyPlaceWithJesus, you'll find so much that will bless your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or the children at church. There are the My Place with Jesus Bible Guides, 21 studies that will take the children you care about into the Word of God. They'll learn the important things, especially the love of God and the sacrifice Jesus made for them. As well, take your children to Journey Through the Bible. It's there at MyPlaceWithJesus.com. It's a special Bible reading program that will get children into the habit of reading their Bible daily and connecting with God regularly. So don't forget, MyPlaceWithJesus.com from It Is Written. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are looking at lesson number five, Horizontal Atonement, the Cross and the Church. Now, John, when we left off just a moment or two ago, we were looking at the significance of the temple and why Paul talks about the temple and how he's bringing people together. His his desire is to help people understand that we are together. We we could be together. We should be together. Uh, We don't always feel that way. But he uses this imagery of the temple to help illustrate that. What's the significance of that? Well, as uh, toward the beginning of the passage, uh, Paul talks about Christ as the great wall basher. He destroys the dividing wall of hostility. So Christ is removing walls that are separating uh, Gentiles from Jews. So it's fascinating that he's already using the language of construction or destruction, demolition, right? So he begins talking about kind of an architectural image by talking about demolishing something, demolishing walls. But then at the end of the passage, he comes back by talking about building something, building a new temple. It's interesting to to watch that develop. And this temple that is built he gives a fairly complex uh, metaphor here. So uh, he says, verse 19, 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. So he's working with immigration status, as we mentioned. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, a beautiful family kind of image. God has drawn you so close that you may be thought of as a member of God's immediate family. Hallelujah. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And then comes the image of building slash temple, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So he's thinking kind of historically here, and these apostles and prophets are probably Christian apostles and prophets, not Old Testament prophets. So built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus himself is what? He's the chief cornerstone. He's the chief cornerstone. Uh, So you have the foundation identified, you have Christ as chief cornerstone, in whom, speaking of Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, if we think about these Gentiles and think about their experience, if they went to the temple to worship, they would eventually, as they moved through the whole temple complex, come to a, a balustrade, a fence that was about four feet tall, and every so often along this fence was a cheerful message written, all right? Uh, the, the message went something like this. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and the enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Oh, that'd be Sounds a cheerful, encouraging. That would be a cheerful message to put on the outside of your church, wouldn't it? So there was this, this division between Jews and Gentiles had been actualized in the architecture of the temple and the existence of this balustrade or fence. And, and most who study this passage conclude that Paul has some reference to that piece of architecture when he talks about Christ as removing or destroying this, this wall between the two. So you, as a Gentile Christian, you can't actually enter into the court of Israel. You can't access the worship of the one true God. But now we come to the end of the passage, and through Christ and through his atoning sacrifice on the cross, not only do they have access to worship, they have become parts, parts themselves of the new temple, the church that God is building. So Paul is tearing down separations. He's bringing people together. Well, Paul's not doing it. He's helping them to understand that Jesus is doing it, helping right. us to understand that Jesus is doing that. And using this, this beautiful picture of, of the temple in order to, to illustrate that. And I can imagine how difficult that would be, how unpleasant that would be to be a Gentile and see that uh, very pleasant message uh, addressed (laughs) to me uh, there. But understanding this to realize that now I don't have to worry about that anymore. Mm -hmm. Now I can come to Christ and, and, and feel like I'm part of the family. That's powerful. And as we've been uh, talking about, as we've moved through the lessons, Paul's purpose here is to, to raise fresh energy in their hearts and minds about what it means to be a Christian. And so, yes, I'm shut out of this, but wow, look at what it means. I am part of a holy temple. I am part of a place where God is worshipped through the Spirit. Very powerful. Now, in this section of the book of Ephesians, there is an interesting couple of verses here that we would be remiss if we did not take a look at. And those are verses 14 and 15 uh, here in Ephesians chapter 2. 
I'm going to go ahead and read those sure. and then let you kind of unpack them and sure. help us to understand what they are talking about and what they're not talking about, because there could be some misconceptions here. In fact, there are some misconceptions. Sure. In verses 14 and 15, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now, there are many, I'll say, sincere Christians who look at those verses and misunderstand what's there. What's what's the misunderstanding and what's the proper understanding? Sure. Well, uh, a misunderstanding of this passage is that that, uh, Christ here is portrayed by Paul as abolishing the Ten Commandments. Okay, that would be a, a misunderstanding. And you could ask me, how do you know that? Why do you know that? Well, there's really an, an interesting way to test that thought, and that's to read Ephesians from start to finish and ask yourself, does Paul say anything about the Ten Commandments here? Uh, what is his attitude in the wider letter to the Ten Commandments? How does he approach the Ten Commandments elsewhere in the letter? So if that interpretation is correct, that Christ on the cross is abolishing the Ten Commandment moral law of God, uh, then we would expect to find in the pages of Ephesians that idea reflected, wouldn't we? That's not what we find. Uh, Perhaps most notably, when we get to Paul's rules for the Christian household, uh, where he talks about relationships between wives and husbands, children and parents, and gulp uh, slaves and slave masters, right? He, at the start of his counsel to children in chapter 6, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then in most modern translations, you'd have quote marks, right? Quote. He's quoting. Honor your father and mother. And then he gives a parenthetical statement. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So he's quoting uh, one of the Ten Commandments here, the Fifth Commandment, right? He's quoting the commandment. It would be really quite odd, wouldn't it, to say the law is abolished. But here, this, you, need, you need this word from the Lord to help guide you in, as you live out your Christian discipleship. And as, as it's very fascinating as we go through the rest of the letter, particularly the last half, we can find almost all of the Ten Commandments alluded to. In fact, one, one blogger thinks he can identify all ten of the commandments in, in Ephesians. But certainly some of them are, are, are quite, quite clear. Uh, the seventh commandment seems referred to in chapter 5, the first part of uh, chapter 5, verse 31, and the early part of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, and, and at the end of chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, that, that seems to refer to the, the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, stealing, chapter 4, verse 28, uh, the, the ninth commandment in chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, uh, and then the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, in chapter 5, verse 5. Those seem fairly secure. So Paul actually, as in the last half of his letter, as he thinks about how you live out all this wonderful doctrine that he's been sharing in, in the first half, he alludes again and again and again to the Ten Commandments. And that leads us to the conclusion that Paul believes the Ten Commandments are important for Christians and should be a guide to Christian discipleship. 
So if the Ten Commandments are still applicable yes. in Paul's day and, and by extension in our day, what was Paul talking about there? Very good question. And I would start by noticing the parallel between, in verse 14, the dividing wall of hostility and the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So there's some parallel there. When you get rid of the one, uh, you, you, you facilitate these two groups becoming one. And, and that leads to one of two potential conclusions, and it's a little hard perhaps to choose between them. What is abolished may be the ceremonial requirements of the law, including later additions to those, right? So it might be the ceremonial pieces plus the augmentation of, of those. And, and those things we can understand because they would very much have separated Jew from Gentile. Or you could go at it in a little different way, and you could say that, that Paul's focus is on the misuse of the whole Old, Test- Old Testament system of law to separate Jew and Gentile. It's clear as we read Ephesians, it's clear as we read Romans, particularly Romans 9 through 11, that for Paul, the Torah uh, bears witness to what he believes God is doing in the church, bringing Jew and Gentile together. For Paul, the correct interpretation of the law does not divide but unites Jew and Gentile in the worship of and of Christ as Savior and Lord. So uh, one of those two, they're kind of related, but, uh, but what seems very clear is that Paul is not discussing here the abolishment of the Ten Commandment law. Yeah, the moral law is still, still the same yesterday, today, and, and forever because, of course, God doesn't change either. Very, very, very uh, clear here. So what does all this mean in, in practical terms for us today? Here we are living in 2023. Sure. It's interesting, but. Sure. What's the but? Well, one way is to just re- rejoice in the gospel. But another way is to go back to thinking about this horizontal reconciliation that Christ brings people, groups together. And I would encourage our, our listeners to, to work through in prayer verses 13 through 18 and, and let it cue some questions. To give you one example, verse 13, Am I in company with Christ, bringing the far near, or am I keeping people who are not like me at a distance? Now, that's a, that's a tough question, isn't it? But really, uh, through the Spirit's work with us as we study verses 13 through 18, there's some, some good searching questions like that. Are we active and engaged in the reconciling work that Jesus accomplished on the cross? Fantastic questions. And by the grace of God, we'll find some good answers to those questions. I trust and pray that you're going to dig through those verses and let them generate some questions in your mind, because as those questions are generated, then we get to go back and find answers. And the book of Ephesians is a fantastic place to find some of those answers. We are on an incredible journey through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, as we seek to understand better our relationship with Jesus and, by extension, with others. And this week, we've taken a look at a significant passage that helps us to do that. Next week, we will be back again as we continue our journey, and we look forward to seeing you as we look at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. This has been Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We look forward to seeing you next time.